welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with the knowledge and inspiration to understand the fascinating world of the human brain. One year ago, I released the first of two episodes and introduced you to the human brain and also how exercise can be beneficial to the workings of our organic supercomputer, especially as we age. I'm delighted to see that the number of listeners are continuing to grow and I have such a wonderful multicultural everyday neuro podcast listening community. As ever, I would like to thank you so much for choosing to download this series and hope you can continue to enjoy it as much as I do creating it. After a year of talking about the brain and its wonderful abilities and how it shapes our behavior, I'd also love to know a little bit more about you. Perhaps you can tell me about what episode has been your favorite or what area has really captured your interest. Also, how have you found some of those tasks that I've set for you, such as testing your memory in episode eight about your own personal autobiographical memory system? Please do let me know and you can find Everyday Neuro on Facebook or if you prefer Instagram, look up the name Everyday Neuro 2018 and you can follow or share your thoughts there. Whatever your preference, it's great to have you join me. So back to episode 12. Today I'm going to discuss theories of development from a psychological and a neurofunctional perspective and then I'm going to share with you the idea of how we form bonds and attachments and how these have been found to shape our relationships as adults from not only friendships but also to our romantic unities as well. So let's start by looking at the various theories that have been proposed about human development and along the way you'll see that Really, what we've done is we've taken a little bit about each of them into our current understanding. So let me sort of give you a little bit of history about me. When I was 17, my intention was to go to art school and become a painter. However, a friend of mine at the time was telling everyone that she was going to become a psychologist. Now, I didn't know too much about the profession at the time, so I decided to do a bit of my own research about working as a psychologist and what it would involve. And when I read about it, it ticked quite a lot of my career boxes. And then one year later, I was able to study my first year of psychology. Now, when people asked about what are you studying, and I told them, then there were two very familiar responses. The first of them was, oh, no, you're not going to start analyzing me, are you? And the second one was, oh, so you're into all that Freudian stuff. So it seems fitting that I start with Sigmund Freud, the famous Viennese physician and psychologist who founded the psychoanalytical approach to human development. Sigmund Freud was born in 1856 and during his life's work believed that humans are driven by mainly unconscious motives and conflicts that are shaped by our earliest life experiences. Now, before we go any further, many people view the work of Freud as being somewhat controversial as he saw children as passive to their environment and that as they develop, they must fulfill strong biological and mainly unsavory urges. Freud viewed the newborn as a seething cauldron driven by selfish instincts that Freud called eros and thanatos. So what is Eros? Well, Freud believed this is the life instinct. It promotes survival by directing life-sustaining activities such as breathing, 
eating, sex and fulfillment of other bodily needs. Thanatos, in comparison, is the death instinct, the destructive forces present in all humans expressed through behaviours such as fighting or sadistic aggression, murder and even masochism. Freud claims that biosocial conflicts arise at several points during childhood that shape the personality in adulthood. Now, some of the most prevailing aspects of Freud's theory of human development are that our personality consists of three components. And you may be pretty familiar with these. The id, the ego, and the superego that govern our psychic energy. So if you're being driven by your id, then this is representative of the personality. The id attends to objects that provide us with satisfaction. The id component is also impulsive and seeks immediate gratification. If it's not controlled, the id can lead adults into antisocial behaviours. So how do we control it? Well, according to Freud, that's why there is the need for the ego. The ego is almost like the executive of the personality. It emerges to direct energy from the id to energize important cognitive processes so that the ego has to block some of the id's irrational impulses. The third component is the superego or the almost judicial branch of the personality. It represents a person's internalized moral standards and strives for perfection rather than for pleasure or reality. This component most likely takes over at about three to six years of age and reduces the need for parental guidance, enabling the child to apparently know right from wrong. Now, according to Freudian theory, a healthy adult personality is a dynamic balance of these three components. And when psychological problems arise, it's because the psychic energy is unequally balanced. So I'm going to try and provide you with a basic summary of, I think I'll choose a sociopath. A sociopath will lie and cheat to achieve their aims and may have a very strong id, a normal ego, but a very weak superego. Freud believed to much controversy that the sex instinct, also known as the libido, was the most powerful drive in the human and would apparently move from one part of the body to another. This thought by Freud led him to develop a theory that consisted of five stages of psychosexual development and these developed from birth onwards and it's probably this area that Freud is probably known for the most because it is extremely controversial. Freud focused for the first time on the importance of early experiences affecting later development and the understanding unconscious motivations was just as important as knowledge about isolated incidences and conscious experiences. Now, this is the thing that I actually really do think we should focus more on because this was groundbreaking at the time. And although Freud is known to be controversial, it is this case study approach that has contributed a lot to modern day counselling and psychological practice. However, there is a lot of criticism of Freud and um, something that won't be the focus of today's episode, but also the fact that his methods, they don't allow for controlled experimentation and his outcome measures are also difficult to accept or falsify. And, and that's always quite a challenge to psychologists.
Now, Eric Erickson, born in 1902, was a follower of Freud and the psychoanalytical approach. Now, although he agreed with the principles of the stages of development and the three components of personality, Erickson didn't agree with Freud regarding psychosexual stages and so developed his own theory that contained eight psychosocial stages. Freud also believed that children were passive, and this is a view that had been shared by another group of psychologists at the time, known as the behaviorists. And these people included John Watson, born in 1878, and also B.F. Skinner, 1904. But anyway, more about them in a moment. One of the greatest differences for me when I compare Freud to Erickson is that Erickson viewed children as active and that they're adaptive explorers who really want to control their environment. They're not passive observers. However, what I find most tricky to accept about the learning viewpoint of Eric Erickson is that he believed nurture is everything. In other words, you have to dismiss the role that your genes have in making you who you are. Now, by proposing this, Erickson agreed with John Watson and B.F. Skinner, who also saw children as a blank slate who learn only by experience. Watson and Skinner went further and suggested that children learn by developing habits which act as the building blocks of how humans develop. They claim that children learn by experience and have no inborn tendencies, and therefore how a child will develop will be entirely acquired from experiences with their environment and the people they spend time with. Unlike the psychoanalysts, human development to the behaviorists should be based on observations of overt behavior, not the unconscious motives or cognitive processes that are unobservable. John Watson developed the notion of classical conditioning from Ivan Pavlov's famous salivating dog experiment. And B.F. Skinner, a follower of Watson, believed both animals and humans will repeat responses that lead to favorable outcomes. In contrast, they will suppress responses that produce unpleasant or unfavorable outcomes, a proposal he called operant conditioning, whereby the term operant refers to the behavior. The likelihood of the behavior happening again depends on whether it's encouraged via a reinforcer or suppressed by punishers. Let's have a go, though, at using some scenarios to try and illustrate operant conditioning in its basic form. So I'd like you to imagine you are given a favorable food type every time you press a particular button. So for me, it might be a piece of dark chocolate. Now, according to Skinner, the likelihood of you pressing the button again is increased because you have received a reinforcer. So in my case, it's the chocolate. And this has led to the favorable outcome of enjoying the chocolate. In contrast, imagine you receive a painful static shock to your finger every time you press the button. Now, the pressing of the button is therefore less favorable for most people, and the likelihood of it being pressed again is reduced. So this simple example is just that, it's very simple, but it only scratches the surface of the way we can use operant conditioning to manipulate or alter behavior. And one of the areas it's really successful is in training animals. And when I 
used to do lectures in this and also on my online courses, I talk about this in relation to dog training. In the past, especially in the mid-20th century, studies investigating conditioning often used methods that would be now deemed as unethical. However, they did provide a lot of information about how we learn, often automatically, from our environment without the need for higher-level cognitive decision-making processes. In fact, Watson and Skinner focused purely on overt behavior, stating that like animals such as the rats, mice and dogs that they often use in their experiments, humans could be conditioned. Now, although I agree that as humans we do learn via conditioning, I cannot agree that we do not use our cognitive processes. As you know, this has been the focus of my work and research to date. So I'm much more drawn to the work of Albert Bandura, born in 1925, who supports the notion of classical and operant conditioning, but that as humans, we think about the relationship between our behavior and the consequences that occur because of it, which in its very essence is a cognitive process. Albert Bandura's cognitive social learning theory features observational learning, which is the process by which children will watch the actions of others and copy from them. And he talks about caregivers and parents providing the strongest observable behavior in the first five years of life. As children get older, though, they choose to watch friends and teachers and other people who they consider to be important. And the person that's being observed is often called a model. And you've probably heard many times about how children look to certain individuals as role models to guide them as to the correct behavior. So most children will have someone in their life that they emulate and it might be a real person such as a caregiver or an older sibling or it can be a person in the media or sporting environment or even for many kids it's a fictitious character such as a superhero or a TV character. For me it was a Firestar from uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and she was just somebody I just thought was fantastic especially as a very shy child uh, dealing with life's kind of events. Young children attend carefully to the model's behavior and actively encode what they observe. And this allows them to create categories or packages of information, which psychologists often refer to as schemas. Now, this allows them to add to sort of their existing information. And so it's a really cognitive process. Very young children are particularly vulnerable to learning inappropriate behavior in the first years of life when they are much more reliant on using observational learning. However, as their brain develops, so too do their cognitive abilities, which allow older children to then think about their actions in much more detail and find relationships between them. And the behaviors that they choose to do are often rationalized so they can tell right from wrong. By the early teenage years, children and now young adolescents can actually think about much more complex issues and theoretical situations. And these different stages of cognitive abilities is really what we see in Jean Piaget's theory of cognitive development that suggests that when a child observes their environment, they experience familiar and unfamiliar things and use schemas to adapt to that new information. According to Piaget, 
equilibrium is something which represents when the internal concept or the schema matches a new experience. Now, new experiences that fit with the concept are added to the existing schema in a process called assimilation. When an experience, though, contradicts the internal thought process or the schema, then this leads to disequilibrium. To incorporate or adapt to the new experience, sometimes the schema has to be modified. And this process is what uh, Piaget called accommodation. So again, let's try and put this into um, a real life scenario. Imagine you're talking with four-year-old Jessica and she has just observed that the family dog called Nelson is friendly and loves to lie next to her when she's playing with her toys. So Jessica has formed a package of information or a schema for dog. At the weekend though, Jessica's family visit a wildlife sanctuary and she comes across for the first time a wolf. Jessica recognizes this as a dog and so runs over to look at it. As she does this, though, she notices that there's some differences in this dog. First of all, it's bigger than Nelson. And unlike Nelson, who loves her to bits, this dog is showing its teeth at her from the other side of the enclosure. Now, Jessica does not like this new dog at all, and is feeling really scared as she's experiencing disequilibrium between her internal thought or schema for a dog and what she's experiencing in her environment. These two things are really quite different. But fortunately, her mum tells Jessica that it's all okay as this is not a dog at all, but actually this is a wolf and it's living in the wild usually and not in houses with people. So the reason it's showing its teeth is that it's unsure of Jessica just as much as she's unsure of it and that a wolf would do this in the wild where it would not see that many people. So thanks to her mum's calm and clear explanation, Jessica can modify her schema for dog via the process of accommodation and so it no longer includes the wolf. Rather, potentially two new schemas are created. One could be for wild animal and another could be for wolf that are closely related to the schema for dog. And this will then expand her knowledge, but also help her with future occasions. So you can perhaps see from this very basic example of how Jessica has learned via observation, but also from her mother's explanation and adjusting her existing schemas. If her mum, though, had reacted quite differently and shouted, for example, get away, it's really dangerous, and not provided a clear explanation, Jessica could have continued to think that this strange dog was scary, and this could have had a negative effect on her overall internal concept for dogs and lead to a maladaptive belief that big dogs are to be feared. Hence, it's hugely important that as adults, we understand how we and children learn so that we can provide the best possible support for our younger generation. Now, this is an area that is really close to my heart and why I've created workshops delivered to primary schools that can provide knowledge of learning and social and emotional development that also include things like screen time use and also bullying so that I can reassure and empower parents and caregivers using best practice guidelines. 
Unfortunately, it's due to a lack of evidence-based information in this area that it's often a sort of challenge for parents and caregivers to really understand what the best advice and process is to helping their child. Now, I've had a lot of comments and feedback from parents who have attended these workshops. And so I've chosen this topic to feature as a course that I'm going to be offering as part of my Everyday Neuro School that opens its, get ready for it, online doors at the end of April. So, yes, it's my big news for um, 2019. And I'm really excited about making my workshops and courses more accessible to people from all over the world. If you are interested and you want to sign up, then you can go to the Everyday Neuro website or Facebook page and become part of the Everyday Neuro community. And as members, you'll receive free videos and discounts to courses and things that I offer on my um, website. Another great thing about the online courses is that you can watch them wherever, whenever, and at whatever pace you want. So you're learning and doing a course, but just like the podcasts, you can do it whenever it's the best time for you. So hopefully now that you've accommodated that bit of new information into your existing schema for everyday neuro, thanks for indulging me with that, I'll return to the topic of schemas later in this episode when I discuss how they can be a contributing factor to the way we form relationships as adults. In the podcast so far, we have covered some of the most influential contributors to our modern day understanding of human development. These theories were often derived from observing behavior and conducting psychological experiments. However, unlike these earlier investigators, we can now study the brain in vivo using neuroimaging techniques. Although this is a hugely fascinating area and one I could talk about for hours and hours, as it's not the central focus of the episode, I will give you a brief summary of what neuroimaging research from the work of people such as Judith Rappaport, Jay Geed and Rochelle Lenroot, to name just a few, has shown us about how the brain develops during childhood and into early adulthood. So before I give you the brief overview... Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure of neuroanatomy and the terms that relate to the brain. If you're thinking like this, then if you feel it will help, I cover a lot of this in the first episode of the podcast series where I introduce you to the anatomy of the human brain. So what has the imaging research shown us so far? Well, at birth, the grey and white matter of the newborn brain is not well differentiated and it only starts to resemble the adult structure around about 12 months of age. At birth, the average newborn brain weighs just 400 grams and is 1.7 times smaller than the average adult brain. However, by the age of six, the total volume of the brain rapidly increases and has been estimated to be approximately 90% of its adult size. However, although it stays relatively stable from there on in, there are maturational changes that continue through late childhood, adolescence, and even into adulthood. It's during the later childhood years and through adolescence that I have studied memory and theory of mind using functional MRI. And so much of what I'm about to tell you, I've seen firsthand from the results of studies that have investigated the developing brain. 
The more basic cognitive functions mature first, it seems, followed by areas involved in more complex functions and top-down control of cognition and behavior. Measures of estimated peak cortical thickness, volume or density are then used to compare with the milestones we see in cognition, such as being able to identify the self and being able to do mathematical computations and develop knowledge about the rules of language. Research has shown that during typical human development, as observed by BJ Casey and her colleagues, motor and sensory regions subserving relatively basic functions mature the earliest, followed by parietal and temporal association cortices associated with basic language skill and spatial attention, and then prefrontal and lateral temporal cortices thought to be involved in higher order cognitive control functions mature last. Using an imaging technique called DTI or diffusion tensor imaging that can investigate the white matter connections in our brain, Catherine Labelle and her colleagues have shown a roughly similar regional sequence of maturation with areas from the frontal temporal connections maturing more slowly than other regions as we go from childhood into adulthood. So, phew, quite a a lot to take on there, but basically what it's saying is that there are changes in both the white and the grey matter that are really showing that we are developing our cognitive abilities almost in stages, which has been theorised by people such as Jean Piaget. You may wonder what it all means, but one of the biggest things I'd like you to take away from this podcast is that we now have evidence from imaging studies about the changes in the structure of the brain that correlate or relate to the proposed cognitive and behavioral changes that the earlier theories of development suggested. It also allows us to discard or reduce our focus on other areas of those theories, such that children are completely passive. That's definitely one that I would throw away. One developmental theory that continues to be supported by modern psychology is that our use of schemas can have an incredible impact on the beliefs that we have and also our relationships. Because not only as a child do you have these schemas, but you carry them through into your adult years. Schema theory also lends itself to other areas such as treatment for anxiety and for explaining how we process humor. One of the most interesting areas I've read about recently is how relationships in adult life can be forged from schemas that are based on how we form emotional attachments or bonds with others as children. And in particular, this usually in the first years of life is to do with our caregiver. According to attachment theorists such as John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, as children, a caregiver is someone that should provide an infant's primary needs, such as food, care, warmth, protection, stimulation, and social contact. Experiments from the last century showed that although food is hugely important, infants will be even more keen for security and protection, something that as adults we often define as intimacy. A caregiver does not necessarily have to be a parent though, rather so long as a child receives their primary needs, this person can be a grandparent, a sibling, a foster parent or a family friend. 
Unfortunately, not all infants and children receive consistent care, which can lead to the formation of schemas that can be detrimental to forming relationships in later life. People can create internal schemas about how they expect people to treat them from their early life experiences and often form maladaptive beliefs and behaviours. For example, a person that has learnt that love and affection was only seldomly available may seek it at all costs as an adult. They could shower their friends and potential romantic partners with affection but often neglect their own needs and wants. If the neglect has been severe, this can lead to a withdrawal of affection-like behaviours to reduce the need for care. As stated by Louise Newman and her colleagues, there is now evidence from neuroimaging research that suggests that mild to moderate negative affective experiences can actually interfere with right hemispheric brain processes to the point where we actually see cell death occurring in the hypometabolic right brain. If this continues, then the brain switches into hypoarousal to try and allow for cell survival. A positron emission tomography or PET study investigating brain activation in post-institutionalized Romanian children found relatively lower metabolism in a network of areas involved in stress regulation, and this included the orbitofrontal cortex, which is the region right behind your eye sockets. So how can we amend these learned attachment style issues from infancy? Fortunately, we are a combination, I believe, of our biology and our environment. And so by addressing our internal beliefs and learned behaviors, we can also change our physiological arousal levels. Schema therapy aims to discuss a person's internal package of information and address those potentially maladaptive pieces of information, thereby leading to disequilibrium. Then, if people are guided by a trained and registered therapist, the schema can be modified or, as we now know, accommodated. In this way, relationship counsellors and therapists can work with a client to restore positivity and build a person's self-worth and self-care. I think the old adage, you can't be open to receive love until you love yourself, kind of comes to mind here. So it seems that human development is really a combination of nature, such as our biologically determined temperament, as well as nurture, such as the learning and the skills that we acquire through observation and the adaptive cognitive processes. One thing that I'm aware of from working for many years with children and from my own family experiences is that just as Erickson stated many, many years ago, children are indeed active, adaptive explorers of their world. So let's hope we can give them the best possible chances to become all they can hope to be as adults. So that's the end of the 12th episode of the Everyday Neuro podcast series. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, please take really good care of that amazing, super organic computer that you have. And I look forward to talking to you again in the next Everyday Neuro podcast. Take care.